So we are starting this new series today called The Final Week, Seven Days That Change the World. And it begins on Palm Sunday, Sunday to Sunday. And I know this scene is familiar to you. We think of our kids who on Palm Sunday, we normally make parade around with palm branches and act out the scene so we can laugh at them and uh, remember how uh, Jesus must have felt entering the city. But if you distance yourself from all those happy memories of Easter's and Palm Sunday's in the past, uh, you got to be honest that the story itself is a little bit strange. There are a few things about it that jump out as unusual. And the main one is, what made Jesus worthy of the praise he received that day? I mean, of all the pilgrims who are walking into town, he's the only one who rides on a donkey. He's the only one welcomed with shouts of Hosanna. He's the only one that people lay out their red carpet for. What about him really qualifies him for that? And beyond that, what does this triumphal procession 2,000 years ago really have to say to us today? People far removed from it, distanced both in time and culture, really, what, what does it mean for you and me? And as I've studied this passage and tried to overlook past Palm Sunday sermons, I actually preached, the first sermon I preached at Central Baptist Church was Palm Sunday 2019, before I'd ever been voted on as pastor. You don't know how bad I just wanted to pull that sermon out and re-preach it, see, see how I had grown or developed as a preacher, but I refused. I said, God, I want to get fresh word from you. I want to hear exactly, I want to understand what you want to say to us from this passage today. And as I did so, I realized something. That the praise the people receive really only makes sense in the context of Jesus' whole life and ministry. Everything they had heard about him and everything they had seen up to that point all came together with these shouts of Hosanna and the praise they gave him as he entered into the streets. So they had discovered who Jesus really was. And by that point, they were able to respond to him in the only way natural, the only appropriate way. And so this morning, as we work through the passage, I hope to be able to help you do the same thing. I would be able to prove to you that if you know who Jesus is, you can't help but praise him. That praise of Jesus will be the whole life goal that you set for yourself. Your whole life will be devoted to Jesus' praise. And I think I can convince you of that if you'll let me. And so I, I see it as two premises that i got to prove. The first is this, that it is possible for you to really know who Jesus is. It's possible for you to know who Jesus really is. And I think that's a controversial claim. I mean, it's controversial if you just take Jesus as he's presented to us in Mark's gospel. I mean, from the beginning, there have been questions about Jesus' true identity. Almost from page one, we see people openly asking, who is this man? Jesus entered the synagogue in Capernaum and was teaching the people and was casting out demons. And the people said, what is this? It's a teaching with authority. The scribes and Pharisees hear news of what Jesus is doing in this city of Capernaum, and so they send investigators from Jerusalem to try to get to the bottom of this, try to figure out who he really is and what he's claiming to do. And they decide to spread the rumor that Jesus is possessed by a demon because they're convinced he's leading people astray. Even his disciples are in the dark for the vast majority of the gospel. They're out at sea, and the winds and waves rise up, and they shout to Jesus, Hey, save us. We're about to die. And so he stands up and says, peace be still. And they look around at each other in terror. Who is this? 
that even the winds and waves obey him. All through Mark's gospel, there is this question, who is Jesus really? Part of the problem is Jesus has sort of um, lended his own command to this secrecy. He's uh, commanded people not to tell anyone about what they've seen and heard from him. So he'll heal people and send them away, say, don't tell anybody what you've seen. Or they'll, the demons will say to you, we know who you are, you're the Holy One of God, and he'll command them to silence. But with the passage we saw last week in the end of Mark 10 and Jesus leaving Jericho in the morning of Palm Sunday, uh, we see this blind beggar cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus doesn't tell Bartimaeus to be quiet. He doesn't command him to silence. Instead, it's like a switch flips. And all the secrecy and the cloudiness about who Jesus really is is going to be swept away. He's going to publicly declare for everyone who he really is. And there's two things in this passage that lend itself to understanding Jesus' true identity. And the first one is his plan. And so we see his plan in verses 1 to 6. Let's look at it again. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. I love this part of the story. Uh, Jesus left Jericho in the morning and uh, ascended up towards Jerusalem 18 miles. 18 miles in one day seems like a lot for me. Okay, My family had me out at Bastrop State Park yesterday doing a loop on their backcountry trail. Hey, four miles is a long way. But as we were walking up this dirt road, I said to my family, hey, you know, Jesus walked up a road a lot like this. Only his wasn't four miles. It was 18 miles in one day. And as they got within two miles of the city of Jerusalem, they started ascending the eastern side of the Mount of Olives, where the village of Bethany sat, and a little farther beyond it, a tinier hamlet, they call it, of Bethphage. Two miles outside of the city, he calls these disciples to him, and he says, hey, go on into the village and grab the colt of a donkey. Nobody's ever sat on it, and bring it back here to me. Jesus had a plan. He knew exactly what he meant to accomplish. And when the disciples obeyed him, look what happens in verse 4. They went away and they found a colt tied at the door, just like Jesus had said, outside in the street. And so they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying, what do you think you're doing? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them. And they gave them permission. Jesus has ascended up towards Jerusalem and he is ready to enact this plan. See, all throughout uh, Mark's gospel, since chapter 8, we've been following this breadcrumb trail that leads all the way to Jerusalem. The first one came in Mark chapter 8 when Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And immediately Jesus starts talking about what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. Listen, I'm telling you, when I get to Jerusalem, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed and he's going to be killed. And on the third day, he's going to rise again. And he says this two other times, three total passion predictions. He tells him exactly what's going to happen when he gets into Jerusalem. And so here is Jerusalem, just two miles away, and all that he's predicted is about to come true. But there's this plan. This plan proves that Jesus isn't some hapless victim. 
set to suffer at the hands of men. But like he says in the Gospel of John, I have authority to lay down my life, and I have authority to take it up again. He's in charge. He's perfectly enacting his plan. He's entering Jerusalem on his own terms. He's calling his own shots. I love the ambiguity even of what he tells the disciples to say to people who try to stop him from stealing the donkey. You know, here they are untying it. And people, you can imagine it. I mean, a small town, small little hamlet of Bethphage, everybody knows everybody. So it's not like we do when we see something happening and we just like turn our eyes away and walk away. These disciples were stealing somebody's cousin's donkey. Now, and somebody told me, somebody told me one time that you have to pay people to take a donkey off your hands today. But back then, I think there would have been a fight, okay? Who do you, what do you think you're doing? You're taking Simon's donkey? Taking Jonah's donkey? And Jesus gave them the password. The Lord needs it. Now, that's ambiguous. Who, who's the Lord? You're talking about the owner of the donkey needs it? You're talking about God in heaven needs it? Or are you talking about the Lord Jesus, who's two miles outside of the village and making his way in? He needs it. I mean, Jesus had this plan. He knew exactly what was going to happen, and he was about to make it happen. Commentators are sort of torn on how we should understand this. I wonder how you think about it. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen in the city. And so maybe we're supposed to understand that Mark saw at work in Jesus, or Peter saw it at work in Jesus, and he told Mark about it, that Jesus has divine or prophetic foreknowledge. He has a perfect understanding of what's going to happen when they get into the village, and he's going to be able to tell them perfectly. Or maybe he prearranged it with his friends who lived in Bethany, and he said, hey, I'm going to come to Jerusalem for Passover, and when I come, make sure there's a donkey outside, and here's the password, the Lord has need of it. I don't know. In either case, Jesus is in charge. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He is making wise decisions to accomplish his plan because he wanted to make sure everybody noticed he was coming to Jerusalem because he was somebody important. So that brings us then not just to the plan, but to the prophecy. And that's in verses 7 to 8. They brought the colt to Jesus, put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. See, this donkey thing is weird. I mean, this is the only time in all the Gospels that Jesus is ever described as riding on any kind of animal. Never in any other place does Jesus get on the back of an animal and ride. And it's even more strange that he does it headed to Jerusalem for a festival. I mean, pilgrims, people traveling for religious purposes, were expected to always arrive in the holy city on their feet, especially so at Passover. Passover was this festival that God had instituted in Israel to always remind them of how he had rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And I don't know if you remember, but they were supposed to eat the meal with their bags packed and their shoes on their feet and their staff in their hand because they were about to have to run. They're about to walk out. And I wonder if the expectation was that you're going to arrive in Jerusalem on your feet because you're going to know what it was like for our ancestors to leave Jerusalem in a I mean to leave Egypt in a hurry. In either case, nobody ever rode into Jerusalem the Passover on the back of a donkey. This wasn't the way it was done. Because of that, this is conspicuous and strange. The only explanation for it is that Jesus intentionally does this to symbolically fulfill an Old Testament prophecy found in Zechariah chapter 9. So I'm going to give you a second to look at the table of contents in your Bible 
and find the book of Zechariah and open it to Zechariah chapter 9. And while you're turning there, I want to tell you what you find in this passage. Zechariah was told to speak the word of the Lord to God's people, and it was a word of judgment on their enemies. And so the first part of Zechariah 9, he names all the surrounding nations around Jerusalem, and he warns them that their time has come, that they're about to be judged and overthrown. And by the time you get to Zechariah 9.9, God starts to instruct his people to praise this man, this king, who's riding on the back of a donkey. He says in Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the, house, and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah's prophecy is a prophecy about the coming Messiah, God's anointed king who would ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, overthrow his enemies, and establish a kingdom defined by peace that would cover the face of the earth. Jesus went out of his way to plan his arrival in Jerusalem in such a way that he would fulfill this prophecy. The only time he ever rides a donkey, he does it with a purpose. He intentionally arranged these circumstances so that he could tell everybody exactly who he is. He is their long-awaited Messiah. And the pilgrims understood that. I mean, all this crowd of people who'd marched with him, probably from Galilee, but at least from Jericho, understood in that moment, okay, it all makes sense. I know who this man is. Bartimaeus wasn't losing his mind when he calls him son of David. He knew exactly who he was. He saw clearly who Jesus really is. He really is the son of David, the Messiah, the one who's come to establish his kingdom and to set us free. And don't you wish you could have been there? Don't you wish you could have seen that? Don't you wish you could have been caught up in the praise? Wouldn't it have been so obvious to you that here is the king we've all waited for? I know they, they say that seeing is believing. And I wish we all could have been there. But we can't. And so we're left to make this controversial claim that it is as possible for us to know who Jesus is as it was for the pilgrims who were with him on the Jericho Road that day. Now say it's controversial because for at least the last 250 years, people have staked their whole lives and scholarly careers on the fact that it's impossible to know who Jesus was or if he ever really existed at all. We, we see this happen um, on a popular level on the History Channel at various times throughout the year. But even biblical scholars sometimes separate the Christ of history from the Christ of faith. They say that, you know, the Bible's full of myths and legends that accumulate from Jesus' followers around this kernel of historical truth. And what we need to do is to strip away all the supernatural and the mythological and get down to the facts. Who was Jesus, really? But this isn't just an academic question. 
Like, who was Jesus of Nazareth, the man born 2,000 years ago? It's actually something that you've probably dealt with, maybe you've even wrestled with in your own heart. It, it confronted me face-to-face back in August. And I was on an airplane headed from Dallas to New York City and sitting beside a guy from Fort Worth who did not know the Lord. So as I'm sharing with him the gospel, making the best use of all the information I've stored away in my brain, trying to prove with conviction that Jesus is God and worth following, you know what the guy says to me? Maybe. Who knows? Now, is it possible to know with any degree of certainty who Jesus really is? Is it possible to know in your heart of hearts that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is the one who came to earth to save his people from his sins? And that guy says, maybe. Who knows? So what I want to do is prove to you that it is possible for you to know who Jesus is. In fact, I believe it's God's desire that you would know who Jesus is. It says so in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, that God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God wants people to know who Jesus is. He has not tucked away Jesus in some hidden corner or box and said, hey, figure it out if you can. It's like one of those seek and find books where you try to pick Jesus out of a crowd of historical fluff. Now, God really wants us to know who Jesus is, and he's gone out of his way to make sure we can. He's given us the gospel, the gospel message, which is the good news of who Jesus is. The Son of God came in human flesh to live a sinless life and die on the cross and raised from the dead so that we who trust in him could have eternal life. Paul calls the gospel the light of God that has shined into our hearts. He says, God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the gospel opens up to us who Jesus really is. God's also given us the scriptures. Jesus said about the scriptures, the Bible, to the Jewish people of his day, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you'll find the words of eternal life. But it's these that testify to me. All the Bible is about Jesus. You want to know who Jesus is? Make it your aim to read the Bible. After Jesus was resurrected, he met with his disciples. And in Luke 24, it says that he began with Moses. That's the five books of the law. And with all the prophets, that's like a catch-all term for the rest of Scripture, the rest of the Old Testament, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained the things concerning himself in all the Scriptures. So God wants us to know who Jesus is. He wants all people to come to a knowledge of the truth, and he's given us the gospel, and he's given us the Bible. And my personal belief is if you had nothing else but the Bible the word of the gospel, and you committed yourself to understanding it with an open heart. God, I want to know who Jesus is. Please show him to me that you'd arrive at the truth. Because we're stubborn, he's also given us teachers like the apostles, men who walked with Jesus and who were there on the Jericho Road and saw him ride into the city on the back of a donkey. The apostle John says in 1 John chapter 1 that the things that we saw And the things that we heard and the things that we felt with our own hands, we proclaim also to you. The apostles were eyewitnesses of who Jesus was. They knew for a fact they stuck their fingers in his palms. 
They saw his wounds. They ate meals with him after his resurrection. They knew for a fact who Jesus was, and so they were able to communicate with conviction and clarity about who Jesus really was. And so they wrote down their recollections in the Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of John. But he didn't just stop with apostles. He also gave teachers and pastors whose goal it is is to open up the Scriptures so that you leave here every Sunday having come face-to-face with Jesus from the Bible. And he's given us each other so that at our connect groups, when we're reading the Bible and talking about what it means, we get to hear truth out of each other's mouth. In fact, the whole body of Christ works together in this way so that we all attain to the knowledge of the Son of God. Listen, you can know for a fact who Jesus is. You don't have to say, well, I wish I could know for a fact. You can know, and here's who he is. Jesus of Nazareth is the eternal Son of God, born in human flesh in a village called Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth, trained as a carpenter. But when he was 30 years old, he went to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist, where he was anointed with the Holy Spirit, and the Father's voice rang out from heaven, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days by Satan. But he came out proclaiming the nearness of the kingdom of God, saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. For three years he traveled all around around ancient Palestine, proclaiming the nearness of the kingdom, healing the sick, casting out demons, and training up 12 men that he intended to send out into the world to spread the good news. At the end of his life, he was betrayed by one of his closest friends and turned over to the Jewish religious authorities who condemned him for claiming to be God. The Romans crucified him, and he was buried in a borrowed tomb. And for two days, his disciples were heartsick and heartbroken that the man they had entrusted with all their hopes had failed to accomplish what he said he would. But on the third day, he rose again. And for 40 days, he spent time with his disciples, was seen by over 500 people. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And at the end of those 40 days, he took his disciples up onto a high mountain, and he ascended into the clouds, into heaven, where he sits at God's right hand, just as God said he would. Behold, today you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool underneath your feet. And Jesus is ruling and reigning there right now. And someday he's going to come back conquer his enemies, and establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That is who Jesus is. And those are facts about him. You can know all those things about him. There's actually something deeper that God wants for you. He doesn't want you just to know about Jesus. He wants you to know Jesus, to have a personal relationship with him, to know the significance of his life for you, that he lived a sinless life, not just because that's what he wanted to do, but so that he could obey the law of God on your behalf, so that though you are a sinner, you could be declared righteous in God's sight. And he suffered on the cross, not just because he thought it was a good idea, but because he wanted to pay the penalty for your sins. And he was raised from the dead, not just because he thought it was a good thing to do, but because he wanted you to know abundant life in him. So you can know who he is, and you can know him personally today. So it is possible to know who Jesus is. And when you know who Jesus is, you can't help but praise him. See, praise is the appropriate response to Jesus. It's the only response that makes sense. And so it helps us to understand why the crowd went in front and followed along behind him, shouting Hosanna. Let's look at that again in verses uh, verses 9 and 10. 
Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So because the pilgrims recognized what Jesus was doing in his plan, fulfilling the prophecy, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, they were able to praise him with genuine heartfelt conviction. They were able to cry out to God that Jesus was blessed. But I want you to know that this praise wasn't just a joyous spontaneity of people caught up in God's action for them. They were actually reciting scripture that they had long ago stored in their hearts. It's what they say is a quotation from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. And Psalm 18 is a special passage. If you want to turn there, we're going to read a little bit of it. Psalm 118 is kind of cool because it's, it's surrounded by both the shortest psalm, Psalm 117, and the longest psalm, Psalm 119. And it's the last psalm in a collection of psalms called the Hallel Psalms. And Hallel is the Hebrew word for praise. And beginning in Psalm 113 and ending or concluding, uh, crescendoing in Psalm 118, these psalms train the people of God to praise Him for His faithfulness and grace. And so when the people of Israel gathered together for worship at these special festival times throughout the year, they would sing the Hallel Psalms. They'd sing Psalm 113 and 114 and 115 and 116 and 117, and especially 118, because it took up all the themes introduced in the first four and the last. And so as they enter into the streets of Jerusalem, these Hallel Psalms are on their lips. The songs they've sang since they were kids in church. The things that had been imprinted on their hearts, they came out, but they came out with so much more meaning and feeling than they ever had before. Psalm 118 is this call and response that most scholars believe would have happened as a worship leader says one part and the people say the other. And so it starts in verse 19 where the worship leader would stand at the gates of the city and say, Open to me the gates of righteousness, and I shall enter into them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. And the righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. To which the people would respond, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of God. The Lord is God, and he, give, he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords of the horn of the altar. You are my God, and I give thanks to you. You're my God, I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Hey, listen, you just make Psalm 118 your morning prayer. I think you'd probably be set. Okay? And that's what these pilgrims did. As they entered into Jerusalem at the end of a very long day of walking, their hearts were caught up into praise for what God was doing in their midst. They saw Jesus as the fulfillment of all God's promises, and they couldn't help but praise. See, verse 25 here in my Bible says, O Lord, do save, we beseech you. In Hebrew, it says, O Lord, Hosanna, save us, we cry. 
Lord, we beseech you, send prosperity. And in that moment, these people are caught up in praise because they recognize that as the Messiah, Jesus was God's answer to their cry for salvation. They've been praying it all their life. Lord, save us. We cry out to you. Save us. And in this moment, here's Jesus, the one who had been born, named Jesus, because he'd come to save his people from their sins. He, he is their answer, they, the answer they have always waited for. Of course, they couldn't fully understand that. They, in their mind, probably had this idea of the Davidic king. As they pray in just a second, they say, uh, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They had these wonderful ideas about Jesus setting up a throne and kicking out the Romans and taking up a sword and conquering his enemies and slaying the streets with blood. But he had something else in mind. The next day he's going to show up and he's going to cleanse the temple. And he's going to debate with the religious leaders about the burden they've laid on top of the people and obscuring God from them. On Thursday he's going to reinterpret the Passover meal itself, and say, hey, this is my body broken for you, and this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And on Friday, he's going to be strung up on a cross. It's a lamb of God take, taking away the sins of the world. Like He had a totally different plan than them, but in that moment, they couldn't help but see that this is what we've always waited for. This is the man we've prayed for, and God has answered not only was Jesus the answer to their cry for salvation, but they saw that in him God intended to bring his blessings near. And of course, it is the Romans they're concerned about, and they want to experience the, the golden age that David had ushered in. But Jesus was going to establish a spiritual kingdom, one where his spirit would reign in their hearts, and they would know his peace, and they would know his joy, and they would know his love. But they still saw him as the one who was worthy of their praise. And so they cried out to him, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, I'm convinced that if we dig into the scriptures and if we try to understand what God is communicating to us in the gospel, we'll come to the same place that they did. We'll see prayer as the natural response. Let me, let me tell you, uh, worship is a natural response. Let me tell you why. Turn over to Romans chapter 12. In the book of Romans, Paul gives his most detailed explanation of the good news of Jesus. That though God has revealed himself and the things he has made so that none of us has any excuse not to worship him, we all reject him. And each one of us is a sinner. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But God loves us and sent his son Jesus to die for us, that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. He tells us that there's nothing that we can ever do that can separate us from the love God has for us in Christ. And over and over and over, he, he helps us to understand what it means for God to be gracious to us. And then he gets to Romans chapter 12. And he turns the page on our response to all that he said about what God has done in Christ. And he says, Therefore, brothers, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, which is acceptable to God. This is your spiritual service of worship. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. 
See, praise is the natural response to who Jesus is. And each person who comes to see him as the Savior, the response to our cry to God, God, save me. Well, here's my son Jesus, sent to save you from your sins. And every person who cries out for God's blessing and hears that every promise of God has its yes and amen in Jesus, cries out in praise. God, I love you and I praise you. But what he's after is more than the songs we sing on Sunday. He's after is a whole life devoted to who he is. In the view of God's mercies, in light of all that God has done for you in giving you his son, offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God. That's who he calls us to be. Jesus said it in his own ministry. Hey, listen, if anyone would come after me, let him pick up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. Lay down your life and follow. That's why Paul says in Philippians 3 that he considers the loss of all things to be worth it in view of knowing Christ Jesus is Lord. Praise is the natural response to who Jesus is, and it's the response that you and I are called to give him. And so I don't know where you stand on the question of who Jesus is. I imagine in a room like this, you've got a pretty wide spectrum of people. You've got people like me. Now, I was raised in church, and so there hasn't been a day of my life when I couldn't tell you that Jesus was God's son. It's just something imprinted on me from the time I was born. And then there are probably people like the man I sat next to on the airplane on the way to New York who are a little up in the air. But God wants you to know today who Jesus is. He is his son sent to save you from your sins and usher in a wonderful life for you so that you could live in his forever kingdom and know him. Do you know Jesus like that? And then there are probably people who know who Jesus is. You know the right answers. You know the stories. You've carried the palm branches on Palm Sunday. And yet, if you're honest, your life is devoted to a thousand other same things besides Jesus. Devoted to career, to pleasure, to ease, to comfort. Today, he's calling you to devote yourself to him, to offer your whole self to him as a living sacrifice, which is your acceptable act of worship. To analyze the things you're doing in light of his will. To know if it's right or good for you. And so this morning, as our band comes and plays one final song, and as we join in to praise, I want to invite you to respond to God. There are going to be some prayer partners in the back of our sanctuary this morning. If you want to follow Jesus, if you want to know Jesus today, they'll be back there. They'd love to help you. If today you want to get back on track with God, you want to devote yourself to praising him. They'd love to help you figure that out. If you know God, but you want to be a part of a family of people who are going to encourage you to worship like the people worshiped on the Jericho Road, come and talk to them. We'd love to welcome you as a member of our church family. But whatever you need to do this morning, get back to the place where you can say confidently, I know who Jesus is. I'm devoted to his praise. Will you pray with me?